Blog Talk Radio. Before we get started with lesson, I want to revival verse I'm still working on. It's a uh, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Psalm 25, 6-7. For me, it's kind of long. It's uh, a little bit harder for me to work on that, but I'm going to try to memorize it. I also want to thank my main sponsor, my mom, and uh, thank you for always paying for my show. And um, if you would like to help the show out financially, you could uh, get, do it for less than a cup of coffee, starting at $3. 
to my coffee account. It's ko fi, and uh, the link is ko fi dot com slash smiley smiles. It's S M I L E Y S M I L E S. And now we're gonna thanks for some tricky toy radio. We're gonna we're gonna start with the lesson, and the lesson is John MacArthur. And it is called, Which Way to Heaven? Jesus becomes the crux of every man's destiny. The choice is made at the crossroads of Christ, if you will. Choose life or choose death. Essentially, that's what Jesus is saying here. The narrow gate, the narrow way, the wide gate, the wide way, that's it. There are no other alternatives. Welcome to Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. Throughout history, it seems every culture and religion has had its own definition of eternal peace that comes after death. But despite the pretty pictures they paint, those philosophies are, well, empty. The future happiness they promise is nothing but fantasy. So what makes the Bible's promise of heaven any different? Find out today on Grace to You Weekend as John MacArthur helps you focus on the glorious home God is preparing for believers and what that can mean to you right now. John calls his current study True Happiness based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And now here's John. Open your Bible with me and look together at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and and 14. In chapter 7 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, which began in chapter 5, comes to a great crescendo, a great climax. That climax is stated in these two verses. The remainder of the sermon to the end of the chapter simply is an expansion of these two verses. Listen as I read them. Enter in at the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be who go in that way. Because narrow is the gate, and hard is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. That is a provocative statement by our Lord. That is really the point to which he has been driving in all of the first part of this great masterful sermon. He brings the whole thing to the climax of a decision, a choice. Two gates which bring the individual to two roads which lead to two destinations which are populated by two different crowds. The Lord then focuses upon the inevitable decision that has to be made regarding that which he has been saying. Someone has well said that all of life concentrates on man at the crossroads. That's really true. From the time of our life when we are old enough to make an independent decision or any decision, life becomes a matter of constant decision-making. Every single day of our lives, we make decisions about everything. We decide what time we'll get up or if we'll get up in the morning what we'll eat, where, where we'll go, 
what we'll do. Constantly, life is a matter of decisions. We just pick roads all the way through life. And so, it is fair to say that life consists of man at the crossroads. Ultimately, and inevitably, there is a final choice. A choice that not only determines time, but a choice that determines eternity. That choice is the one to which our Lord speaks in these verses. The ultimate choice. Now, it has always been God's effort to bring man to the making of that ultimate choice. Always. There's always an option so that there's always a choice. And the choice that is ultimate is the choice that God is most concerned about. Jesus becomes the crux of every man's destiny. The choice is made at the crossroads of Christ, if you will. Choose life or choose death. Essentially, that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. And, beloved, the choice is utterly clear-cut. There are only two choices. The narrow gate, the narrow way, the wide gate, the wide way, that's it. There are no other alternatives. None. Now, let me add a footnote on that. The contrast here, and I want you to understand this or you'll never understand the passage. The contrast is not between religion and paganism. And I've heard so many people use it that way, that the narrow way is the way of Christianity that goes to heaven, and the broad way is the drunken orgy that's going to hell. It is not a contrast between godliness and Christianity and irreligious people, pagan people, openly lewd and lascivious, godless, immoral masses on their way merrily to hell. It is not that. It is a contrast in two kinds of religion. Both roads marked, this is the way to heaven. Satan doesn't mark roads, this is the way to hell. That's not very deceiving. It is not a contrast then between religion and paganism. It is a contrast not between righteousness and declared unrighteousness. It is a contrast between divine righteousness and human righteousness, between divine religion and human religion, between true religion and false religion. Every man makes a choice, and the choice is this. Either you're good enough on your own or through your system to make it to heaven, or you're not, and you cast yourself on the mercy of God through Christ. Those are the only two systems of religion in the world. Jesus is saying, look, there are two roads marked to heaven. One is the narrow, compressed road of divine righteousness. The other is the broad road of human righteousness. You see, the Jews had taught that they could make it on their own. That's why it was so shocking when the Apostle Paul said, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight, Romans 3. And Paul said, the law came in order to stop our mouths from any claim to righteousness and to render the whole world guilty before God. The law came to show us our sinfulness. But when self-righteous, ego-centered man saw that he was sinful by the law, 
He didn't want to face his sinfulness, so he set the law aside, reinvented a new system that accommodated his shortcoming, and then on the basis of the man-made system, affirmed to his own mind that he was righteous. That's human achievement. The Lord's whole thrust in the Sermon on the Mount is to break the back of that kind of a system, to show them that all the way through that system doesn't make it. The Jews, of course, thought they were righteous. They thought they were on their way to heaven, on their way to the kingdom. But Jesus forces them to rethink and to make a decision and a choice. It's the same choice every one of us has to make as well. Now, as we come to verses 13 and 14, the choice is crystallized. There are two gates, the wide and the straight. There are two ways, the broad and the narrow. There are two destinations, life and destruction. There are two kinds of travelers, the few and the many. There are two kinds of trees, the good and the corrupt. There are two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. There are two builders, the wise and the foolish. There are two foundations, the rock and the sand. And there are two houses, and there are two elements to the storm that he discusses. In other words, the clear-cut decision is the whole issue at the climax of this sermon. And I repeat, Jesus does not want bouquets for the ethics, and Jesus does not want postponement of the requirements. What He wants is action, response. And He forces us to a decision. And people, I don't think, have really understood this passage. There are four contrasts I want you to see in these verses. Four contrasts. Number one, two gates. Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate. And then verse 14. Because narrow is the gate. Two times he mentions the narrow gate. Once he mentions the wide gate. Two gates. Only two. Both roads, as I said, point to salvation. Both roads point to God. Both roads point to the kingdom. Both roads point to glory. Both roads point to blessing. Both roads point to heaven. Both roads don't go there. One is self-righteousness. And one is divine righteousness. Before you get on the road, you've got to go through the gate. So the gate comes first. Now let's look first of all at the narrow gate. And this is basically the crux of the interpretation, so we'll spend a little more time on this. I want to just begin to develop the concept that's involved in this narrow gate. First of all, the first thing I see as I look at verse 13 is, you must enter. There's a sense of urgency here in this aorist imperative. It demands a point of action right now. Do it now. Enter now. This is the time. This is the moment. This is what God is calling for. You must do this. It is not an option. It is a command, an absolute command. Now, the Lord Jesus had been teaching them a very narrow way of life. Their way had all kinds of tolerance for sin. They had all kinds of laws beyond the law of God. They had all kinds of standards beyond the standards of God. They had invented a system that was man-made and far-reaching, and all of these kinds of things were part of their system. And Jesus said, you've got to get rid of that. You've got to get rid of that. This is what it is. This is what it is. And he narrowed it and narrowed it and narrowed it down until by the time he came to chapter 7, verse 12, he had presented to them a very refined and confined approach to living to the glory of God. And they got the picture that it was a very narrow, prescribed way. You cannot enter the kingdom, he says, unless you come on these terms, abandoning your self-righteousness, seeing yourself as a beggar in spirit, as mourning over sin, as meek before a holy God, not proud and boastful, as hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not believing you have it. 
You have to enter his, on his terms. Hell will be full of people who admired the Sermon on the Mount. You must enter. Second point, you must enter this gate. You must enter this gate. Enter in at the narrow gate. He says there's a wide gate, but he doesn't tell you to enter that one because it leads to destruction. You must enter. You can't stand out and admire it. You've got to go through, and if you're going to be in the kingdom, you've got to go through this gate. Now, that's very narrow, isn't it? I mean, that's very prescribed. People say, you know, uh, Christianity doesn't give room for anybody else. That's exactly right. We don't do that because we're selfish or because we're proud or because we're egotistical. We do that because that's what God said. If God said there were 48 ways to salvation, I'd preach all 48 of them. But there aren't. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be, what? Saved. None other name. Jesus, Acts 4.12. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. Anybody who comes in any other way is a thief and a robber. John 10. There is, 1 Timothy 2, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Only one. No other name. Christ and Christ alone. It is that narrow. It is that prescribed. There are no alternatives. You must enter... By an act of the will and an act of faith, you have to enter on God's terms through God's prescribed gate. And Christ is that gate. He is that way. And holy God has the right to determine the basis of salvation, and He has determined that it is Jesus Christ and Him alone, and that's the way it is. Thirdly, you must enter. You must enter the narrow gate. And you must enter alone. You must enter alone. I see this as implicit in the text. If you study the term narrow, you get the idea that it is a very narrow gate. In fact, many commentators would say that the best expression of this in a contemporary way would be a turnstile. One of those things where you have to go through all alone. The metal is very close and there's a little arm there that you push and you go through. That's the way it is with a narrow gate. You don't come to the kingdom of Christ in groups. The Jews believed, hey, we're in the kingdom. We're all on the road together. We all came through together based on Abrahamic heritage, based on Jewish ancestry, based on circumcision. We're all here together. And I think there are people who think that they're on the right road to heaven. They got on when they got to church. They came to church. We're all in the church, and the whole church got on together. There are no groups coming through the turnstile, folks. You go through all alone. Salvation is individual. People have never been saved in pairs. Oh, when one believes, it may influence another to believe, but everyone's salvation is exclusive and intensely personal. It admits only one at a time. And that's kind of hard, you know, because all our life is spent rushing around with the crowd. All of our life is spent doing what everybody else does, being a part of the group, being a part of the gang, being a part of the system around us, being accepted. And all of a sudden, Christ says, you're going to have to come, and you're going to have to come through this deal all by yourself. And to a Pharisee, that meant you're going to have to say goodbye to those people and that system and step out alone. There's a price to pay, a real price. It isn't enough to claim your Abrahamic ancestry. 
It isn't enough to go back to your circumcision. It isn't enough to say, I was born in a Christian family. I've been in the church all my life. You don't come into the kingdom in groups. You come in an individual act of faith. You must enter. You must enter the narrow gate. You must enter alone. Listen to this one. You must enter with great difficulty. With great difficulty. Now, I know that shocks some people. Because we hear all the time that getting saved is easy. All you have to do is just believe, sign the dotted line, walk the aisle, raise your hand, go to the prayer room, whatever. And we have made it easy. The only thing is when we get done, the people aren't on the right road because they didn't come through the narrow gate. Now, without shocking you too much, I believe it's very, very difficult to be saved. Did you hear that? Let me show you why. It says at the end of verse 14, regarding the narrow gate and regarding the narrow way, few there be that what? Find it. The first implication is that you're not even going to know it's there unless you're what? Looking. The Old Testament prophet said, you'll find me, says God, when you search for me with all your heart. I don't believe anybody ever slipped and fell into the kingdom of God. I don't believe it's easy. That's cheap grace, easy believism. That's the revivalist approach. Raise your hand and walk the aisle, sign the card, and you're in. Well, I believe. I believe in Jesus. Fine, you're a part of the family. Few there be that find it. it implies that you've got to look for it, but you have to search for it. Let me take it a step further. Look with me at Luke 13, and I'll show you a verse that will really shock you. Luke 13. As Jesus, in verse 22, was going through the cities and villages teaching, he came toward Jerusalem. As a result of his ministry, it was apparent to the people with him that not everybody was responding as they thought they should. It's always hard for us to understand why people don't respond to Christ. And so one of them said to him in verse 23, Lord, are there few that be saved? I mean, it was his observation that not many people responded. Lord, is it just a few? And he said unto them, and he gave them the answer to the next question. The one they didn't ask. The, the first question's answer was yes. The next question would have been why? To which the answer would be because you must strive to enter in at the narrow gate. And the word strive is agonizomai, from which we get to agonize, which is used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 of an athlete agonizing to win a victory which is used in Colossians 4.12 of laboring fervently, which is used in Paul's letter to Timothy in the idea, chapter 6, verse 12, of fighting. In other words, the Lord says it is an agonizing, it is a warfare, it is a fervency that is demanded, a striving to enter in at the narrow gate. And there are many, as opposed to the few, who will seek to enter in but won't be able. Now watch this. It's difficult to get saved, Jesus says. Number one, because you've got to be seeking. And there are maybe many who are seeking. But when they find out what it costs to strive to enter, they're not willing to do that. That's a very strong statement. This is Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur, Chancellor of the Master's University and Seminary, Pastor of Grace Community Church, and his current study is showing you the path to true happiness. Now, John, when you talk about the high cost of following Christ, 
that's not the popular message in many churches today. And so I'm curious, what do you think compels so many churches and so many preachers to try to avoid or downplay the hard-to-hear aspects of the gospel? I mean, if the gospel has offensive elements, if it's a stumbling block and a rock of offense, then that's what it is. It's not good when people try to get around that, right? There are two reasons why people alter the gospel. Reason number one is because they don't want to offend someone they're trying to reach. You know, I'm, I, I want you to know Christ. I, I want you to go to heaven and not hell. So I don't want to scare you. I don't want to chase you away. I don't want to offend you. So I'm going to take out the hard parts that might offend you. The second reason that people alter the gospel is because they believe that the sinner is the one who determines salvation. In other words, I've got to convince him, so I've got to do whatever I need to do to manipulate his will to embrace Christ. Both of those are profound errors. One, you can't change the gospel. You can't take the hard part of the gospel out or you've eliminated the gospel. You've got to confront sin, righteousness, judgment, eternal punishment, and it's got to be straightforward. And then you have to completely understand that that sinner can only respond to that offensive message, but that glorious message, if God opens the sinner's heart. So when you understand that God is the only one who can save, the only one who can regenerate, the only one who can grant salvation, and he does it when the sinner is enabled to believe the full truth of the gospel, then you're going to approach evangelism in a very different way. And along that line, I want to mention a book called Hard to Believe. It is hard to believe. It's really impossible to believe. The subtitle, The High Cost and Infinite Value of Following Jesus, supports that. The book examines the corrosion and corruption of the biblical gospel from within the walls of the evangelical church. For too long, God has not consistently been the center of the gospel. Comfort, tastes, felt needs have dethroned God and the hard truths that genuinely lead to salvation. The book is hard to believe. It asks the questions and answers them. Is the gospel easy to believe? Is the gospel about self-fulfillment or self-denial? Why do churches replace the biblical gospel with an easy-to-believe message? Those kinds of questions. It's one of our classic books. The title, again, Hard to Believe, Order a Copy from Grace to You, as always, reasonably priced. That's right. And friend, this is a great book. It clearly lays out the hard demands of the gospel and what it takes to meet those demands. To pick up a copy of Hard to Believe for yourself or for a friend, get in touch today. Call us at 855-GRACE, weekdays from 7.30 a.m. to 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific, or shop online at gty.org. For a fresh perspective on the high cost and infinite value of following Christ, you need to get this book. Just ask for the title, Hard to Believe. Our number again, 855-GRACE, and our website, gty.org. And while you're at the website, gty.org, I would encourage you to check out the messages from last year's Truth Matters Conference. John and other well-known teachers went to the Answers in Genesis Conference Center, right next to the Ark Encounter, 
And our conference theme was Recovering a Biblical Worldview. You will hear teaching on critical race theory, social justice, gender and sexuality, and other crucial, timely topics. To view those messages or to download any of John's sermons from 54 years of pulpit ministry, go to gty.org. And now for John MacArthur, I'm Phil Johnson. Keep in mind, Grace to You Television airs Sundays on DirecTV Channel 378, or check our website to see when it airs in your area. And be here next week when John helps you nail down the Bible's guidelines for singleness and marriage. It's another half hour of unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, on Grace to You Weekend. Fossils in 24 hours? This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky. How long does it take to form a fossil? Well, ask the average person and they'll say millions of years. But did you know scientists can form fossils in the lab in 24 hours? That's right, in just one day. And these man-made fossils were virtually identical to ones from nature, even under a powerful microscope. In other words, it doesn't take millions of years to form fossils. With the right conditions, mostly heat and pressure, fossils can form very quickly. And during Noah's global flood, the conditions would have been perfect to form billions of fossils. Fossils aren't millions of years old. They're thousands of years old. 
Check out our faith-building resources, including our streaming platform, Answers TV, at AnswersRadio.com. There's learning and fun for the whole family at AnswersRadio.com. published the award-winning family magazine, Answers. Imagine it's fall. You're out for a walk. What's crunching under your feet? Dried, shriveled leaves that just days ago were hanging flat from trees. Now consider leaves found in the fossil record. They aren't shriveled, dried-up leaves. Rather, the fossil leaves are flat, like they're on a living tree. 
They look as if they were ripped off and quickly buried and turned into fossils. And that's because they were. Leaf fossils formed during the global flood as the rising waters destroyed whole forests. And that also explains why the same plant fossils are found together across whole continents. Only a global flood could bury a forest the size of a continent. Learn more about the flood and its effects at our life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. Fossils through layers. This is Ken Ham. 
whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible curriculum. Fossils are usually only found in one rock layer, but not always. Some fossils, like those of trees, can pass between two or more coal layers. Now, most people are taught that coal had formed very, very slowly in peat swamps. Supposedly, these swamps were eventually buried and the heat and pressure turned the peat into coal over millions of years. More peat was deposited and buried and the cycle continues. But how could a tree sit on one layer and remain there over millions of years waiting for the next layer to form? It couldn't. Coal and fossils were formed quickly as plants and animals were rapidly buried during Noah's flood. Discover more about creation, evolution, dinosaurs, the age of the earth, and more at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find answers to your questions when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. 
hard clams. This is Ken Ham, encouraging all churches to start their worldview thinking using God's Word. Clams are shellfish that are found around the world. When one dies, a muscle that connects the two halves of the shell relaxes and the clam opens up. Okay, why am I talking about clams? Well, there are millions and millions of clams in the fossil record and many of them are found tightly closed. That means they were buried while alive. Also, these clams are often found in a jumbled mess. This clearly shows they were ripped up, moved along and then quickly buried very deep. What could do that? Well, only the global flood of Noah's day. You see, fossils aren't the result of slow processes over long periods of time. They're a reminder of the flood. Geology confirms the history in God's Word. Find out more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. There are at least two people 
we can blame for all of the church shopping and hopping we see in evangelical Christianity. Number one, Henry Ford, before the invention of the automobile, you had two church choices. You either go to the church you can walk to or you don't. That was the choice. Number two, Mr. Saddleback, Rick Warren, turned church into a commodity that we could pick and choose as we see fit. You could even Google church reviews, you know, like restaurant and concert reviews. Seriously? Talk about a consumer mentality. And as a rule, the evangelical view of the church it is mega low. Even if you have a high view of church, be honest, being a member of a local church, it can be as fun as watching reruns of Blossom. So here are five reasons you should not leave a church, followed by five reasons you actually can leave your local church. Number one, you can't leave just because people get up your nose. That's pretty much why the church exists, for us to be rubbed by other sinful people and become sanctified. That's why you need to be a serving member of a local church, because we all just have to learn how to love those annoying people. Are you the most annoying fan in the world? Number two, you can't leave just because your small old orthodox pastor said something a little bit off. If, if he said, hey, you know, come to think of it, maybe Joseph Smith really is a prophet. Then run for that oil of your sign at the back of your church. Otherwise, you can just let some things go. That goes to sermon length. It's too long. It's too short. That's no reason to skedaddle. Number three, you can't just leave because you despise the worship. If you would like to hear our treatment on Hillsong, you can watch the video link below. Number four, you can't leave just because the elders don't make the exact same decisions that you would make. God has them there to make those decisions, and he has us here to submit. Number five, you can't leave just because they have no youth programs. Now, that might be a reason. I'm discussing that later. But not just because of that. And now, here are five legitimate reasons you actually can leave your church. A numero uno, theology issues, specifically orthodoxy issues. Suddenly the pastor, the church, they deny the deity of Christ. What should you do? They start denying the triune nature of God, substitutionary atonement of Right. If obvious heresy is being taught, then follow the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1. Let them be anathema and skedaddle. Number two, sin issues. If sin is permitted, even encouraged, yikes, in the church body, then, then you, you, you can go. It can range from anything like not discipling or rebuking men and women who live together before marriage to encouraging sinful sexual practices. If the church doesn't deal with overt sin, it's not the church. Third, ongoing theological sins. You can stay at a sound church with some secondary agreements, but if a church is living in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, 
here. <laughs> Number four, if you find a church that genuinely feeds you and your family in a substantially better way, you can go, not surreptitiously, but you can go with the blessing of your current church. And that might include youth programs for the kids, but be careful about placing kids' ministries over pulpit ministries and snuck in underneath point number four. It's okay to leave your church when your church has already left you. It used to be sound and expository. Now they're still orthodox in the file cabinet, but they become purpose-driven or hipster-driven. It's okay to find a church that behaves the way your current church once did. And finally, it's okay to leave a church if there's church abuse happening, especially toward you. This can range from financial exploitation, shaming, name-calling, psychological abuse. Those are valid reasons for leaving your church. But got to sneak in a few rules about how to go about the business of leaving. First, don't make a mess on your way out the door and slandering. Just leave gracefully. When you run into somebody in the supermarket, be gracious. Don't leave under the cover of night. Inform your current leadership. We're leaving. This should be a peaceful transfer. And finally, don't try to take others with you. Let them figure it out. Or if they call you after the fact, you can explain to them, but don't be a sheep stealer to that end. You can view our video here, point over left shoulder, on questions to ask when church shopping. This is a big deal. It's a big subject. We should have a high view of the church. So if you have any helpful hints that will help us navigate the potential of skedaddling from our local church, don't make me beg. Leave them below. I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. And I wonder if you ever see yourself in Hebrews uh, 10, verse 39, that wonderful verse that says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, uh-uh, but we are of those who believe and are saved. So, just who are, quote, those? Well, the following verses explain it with the great honor roll of those who persevered, like Moses and Enoch and Noah and Sarah, Abraham, Rahab, Gideon, David. Samuel, just to mention a few, even though these believers had problems, Moses murdered, Abraham lied, Noah got shot, they had failures, but they persevered. And because of that, their faith was great. And friend, if you persevere through your failures and disappointments, you are one of those. <laughs> You're linked with Moses and Enoch. And you know what else? Hebrews said that 
for that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Yeah, it's kind of hard, but don't you dare give up. Don't you shrink back. Others hung in there, and so can you. Rivet your eyes on Jesus Christ and persevere. Christian, you shouldn't be telling a lost, unrepentant sinner that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Without Christ, they're not actually in his love. They're under his wrath. And their idea of God's plan for their life is their plan for their life. So you walk up to what we know about a sinner. He is self-centered. He's autonomous. He wants to do his own thing. He has his own dreams. And he is in love with himself. So you walk up to this man and you say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he goes, what? God loves me? That's fantastic. I love me too. And you're even saying that he loves me more than I love me? Now that sounds impossible. How could anyone have such a great love? And God has a wonderful plan for my life. Oh, I have a wonderful plan for my life too. And you're telling me that if I accept this Jesus, he will help me with all my wonderful plans and I can have my best life now? Well, then I'll take a God like that. You got two of them? What you should tell an unbeliever is what the Bible says. Show them their sin according to the scriptures, that they have broken the law of the creator of the universe, and they stand guilty before a holy God. It's only when the Spirit convicts them of their sin that they can know the grace and mercy of God and the sacrifice of his Son. Then they will see the immensity of his love and his wonderful plan through the gospel of Jesus Christ when we understand the text. gospel offensive? Just how offensive is the gospel? Is there a scandal when it comes to preaching the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, consider two different people. One person, a murderer, and another person, very altruistic, very uh, much helping other people, and her name is Mother Teresa. This is what they want to do. Look at Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer and a sex offender. He murdered 17 men and boys in ways that I don't really want to describe. Uh, he had a trial and was convicted of many of these murders, 15 counts of murder and sentenced to 15 lifetimes. Jail, someone came and preached Jesus. And he said, Jeffrey Dahmer said, that's how I always thought anyway. I always believed the theory of evolution is true that we all just came from the slime. When we died, you know, that was it. There is nothing. That's what Dahmer said. He believed. But then he began to study the Bible. And then he began to say things like, I'm so sorry for what I've done. God help me. Dahmer said things like, I feel very, very bad about the crimes I've committed. I think I should be put to death for my crimes. There's nothing. Any woman I say to I just can see truth and I, I don't know how to express the regret, sorrow. Um, I don't feel for what I've done for the, for the sons. Donald even said, I don't know if you've heard, but last Sunday I was cast off 
I'm John Erickson Tata. And I personally know many people who suffer and they suffer greatly. Um, several have incurable chronic conditions which have forced them to bed for years. Oh, do they inspire me. I don't know how they manage without complaining. I'm thinking of Lisa Marie, who has lived in her bedroom for years. And this is what she said. She said, the cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? In other words, it was her way of saying, God's in control here. Shall I not accept what he's doing? Man. I mean, to me, that is the highest, most sublime Christian achievement. To live with great pain, to bear daily an unthinkable burden while seeing no relief, to trust God through, I mean, great affliction. That is Christ-exalting faith at its highest. You know, possibly the greatest ministry a person could have in the kingdom just might be the ministry of suffering. It shows great faith to suffer well. Not so much in the ability to do things, but to not do things, yet trust God without complaining. No greater proof there is of your faith than that. So today, prove the greatness of God by trusting him through the hardest of your times. It's your good word today, no matter how much you Made you. God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For his glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's word. God's word. God's word. He ascended into heaven. 
Where's Jesus now? He is seated at his Father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Usually, when I ask people about sins they've committed, they're very quiet. But that certainly wasn't the case for this young lady. Doing anything that's morally frowned upon by God? There's an afterlife. Just, I can't imagine that there's not something after. You know, maybe there's not a God, but I don't think that there's just nothing. Have you ever heard of the Noah flood? No. Have you ever heard of Noah? No. Have you ever heard of Nathan? Yeah. <laughs> That's your name. And you know it's from the Bible. Yeah. He was a prophet. Let me tell you what he did a little later. I heard you say maybe there's not a God. Why would you say that? Nathan, are you afraid of dying? Um, not really. No. So you're quite happy to die. I'm not happy to die, but if he came, I wouldn't be mad. I would just accept you know, accept it and accept that, you know, God wants me to be with him or, you know, maybe he wants to bring me back in a different form. Is he your friend? I believe he is that he's everyone's friend. Yes. You know what the Bible says? I don't really read the Bible. Yeah, it says we're enemies of God in our mind through wicked works. Let's see if we can find out why you don't want God to exist. Are you doing anything that's morally frowned upon by God? Um, premarital sex. Yeah. And lying and stealing and blasphemy. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to do on Judgment Day? I don't think I've done anything that's that bad. Did you hear what she said? I don't think I've done anything that's that bad. That's rooted in idolatry. It comes from a wrong understanding of God's character and nature. We go about to establish our own righteousness, as the scriptures say, being ignorant of the righteousness which is of God. That's why we need the moral law to show us God's standard of righteousness, and that shows sin to be exceedingly sinful. Are you a good person? Yeah, I think so. Did you ever read the Bible? Um, not anymore, but I used to when I was younger. Do you know what death is according to the Bible? No. Wages. The wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at the heinous criminal that's murdered three girls, and the criminal says they were just prostitutes. No big deal, judge. They were the scum of the earth. They cleaning up society. And the judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm paying you in the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. And you and I think lightly of sin. We say, oh, it's a little bit of lying, stealing, fornication, blasphemy, no big deal. But it's so serious, God's given you the death sentence. Soul that sins shall die. So do you think you're evil enough for God to be justified in giving you the death sentence? Probably. And did you hear that? That's the complete turnaround from saying, I don't think I've done anything that's that bad to I probably deserve the death sentence. Do you ever use God's name in vain? Yes, I don't really mean it, but, you know, it comes out. Yeah, that's what it means by taking it in vain. It's not giving it due honor. Love your mum? Yes, sir. Did you ever use her name as a cuss word? No. No. Why not? Because that's my mum. You respect her. Yes, sir. You don't respect the God that gave you a mum. You've used his holy name as a cuss word. 
the Seder SH, Seder whose holy name, which is called blasphemy, punishable by death in the Old Testament. That's how you know you're an enemy of God. So let's see how you're going to do on Judgment Day. Can you be honest with me? Yes, sir. How many lies have you told in your life? <laughs> Too many to count. So what do you call someone who's told lies? A liar. So what I'm doing is personalizing his sin, as Paul did in Romans chapter 2. You who say you shall not steal, do you steal? You who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? That's what Nathan did with David when he said, you are the man. Ever stolen something? Uh, yeah. What do you call someone who steals? <laughs> thief, yes. So what are you? A thief. No, you're a lying thief. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever used God's name in vain? Probably. You're hanging in there. Appreciate it. <laughs> this is not a pleasant experience. A little personal. Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked with lust? Is that like looking at someone lustfully? Yes. <laughs> yes. So we're not going to go to the fornication one. I don't want to embarrass you. But <laughs> Melissa, you've told me that you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart, and you're self-righteous and saying you're a good person when you're not. You're like the rest of us. So here's the big question. If God judges you by the Ten Commandments, we've looked at four, on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty? I would say guilty. Heaven or hell? Heaven. Let me tell you what the Bible says, Nathan. It says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit God's kingdom. So you're in big trouble. God gives you justice on Judgment Day, then you're going to be damned by God. Now let me tell you about Nathan the prophet. There was a man in the Bible called King David. Have you heard of him? Well, he was a king. He looked at another man's wife. He laughed her after him. The husband was away in battle, so he took her to himself and had sex with her. That's what the Bible tells him. She comes back and says, I'm pregnant. So he gets the husband, has him sent to the front line of the battle and kills deliberately. And he takes that woman and marries her and sleeps everything under the carpet. God said to Nathan, the prophet, I want you to go and refute David for what he did. So Nathan goes to the king and he says, King, I want to tell you a story about a man who stole another man's lamb and his pet lamb. And he had a kill. And David stood up and he said, that man will restore fourfold and he will die. And then Nathan said, you are the man. You stole another man's work. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? And David said, I have sinned against heaven. God forgive me. So that's Nathan you're named after. And you're in the same position as David. Nathan, you're the man. You've despised the commandments of God. You've broken them. You're heading for hell. And you must repent. I'm definitely going to be guilty. Heaven or hell? Probably hell. You've earned your wages. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. So now she's moved from saying, I probably deserve death, to saying, I certainly deserve it. Saying what David said when his sin was discovered. He said that you might be justified when you judge. You're saying God is justified in giving us the death sentence. You know what Jesus' last words were just before he dismissed his spirit? He said in three very profound words. Do you know what they were? Gone. He said, it is finished. He was saying, paid in fully. You and I broke God's law, the Ten Commandments, and Jesus paid the fine in full. So he was saying, paid in full as he died. It's like you're in court. You've got a stack of speeding fines. The judge will let you go if someone else pays those fines. Even though you're guilty, he lets you walk. He says, these fines are being paid by another. You're out of here. Well, God can take the death sentence off you. He can let you live forever legally because Jesus paid the fine and full on that cross and then rose from the dead and defeated death. And Alyssa, all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent of your sins, yes, but then trust in Jesus. At the moment, you're like someone on a plane who's going to jump 10,000 feet, and this is his plan. 
He's going to flap his arms and try and save himself. It's not going to work. He just needs to trust the parachute. And so don't trust your goodness to save you on judgment day. It's not going to work. You've got a multitude of sins like the rest of us. Simply transfer your trust from yourself to the Savior. And the second you do that, you've got a promise from the God who cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie because he's without sin. Then you'll grant the everlasting life as a free gift. Would you sell one of your eyes for a million dollars? No. Ten million. <laughs> Probably not. A hundred million. No, they're precious. But listen to what Jesus said about the value of your eyes. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's better to enter heaven without an eye than you're going to hell with both your eyes. In other words, your eyes are of no value at all compared to the value of your soul. You see, what should it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Your life is so precious, and that's what I'm talking to you about today eternal salvation of your life, your soul. People say, our oh, faith isn't that big a deal. Well, if you're walking along a path and I say to you, there's a landmine right in front of you, if you believe, you'll walk around it. If you don't, you'll walk on it. So beliefs will govern where you go and your beliefs will govern your destiny. If you believe the gospel, you'll obey it. So please think about why I'm so earnest. Why am I talking like this? It's only because I care about you. I don't want to see you in hell. I don't want to see any human being in hell. You know what a summons is? Like, yeah. That's when a judge says, you come into court, and you get into trouble if you don't show up. Well, death is a summons. It's an arresting officer that's going to drag you before the judge of the universe to answer the crimes against his law. And the Bible says, that's a fearful thing. God is not the old hairy man in the sky wearing a pink night. He's reaching out to touch Adam's finger like it shows in some of the paintings. He's the one that created thunder and light. And it's just a small part of God's creation, so... God is to be feared, and if you fear God, you'll think deeply about your state before him. Do you hear what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Notice her facial expression. There is a mingling of contrition, sorrow for sin, and fear that she sinned against God. You say, well, why don't you lead her in a sinner's prayer while she's ready? Well, because it's not biblical. I wouldn't do that. There's no precedent for it in Scripture. It goes hand in hand with the method, the unbiblical method, of modern evangelism, and it's Build the church with false converts. If you want to see what damage it's done to the church, read a free book called God is a Wonderful Plan for Your Life, and it's a picture of Stephen being stoned to death on the front, and you can read the book online or get it free in a physical form by going to freewonderfulbook.com. Listen, when you leave here, you've got a choice. You can say, that was interesting, and you can carry on doing things you know that are morally wrong. Are you doing anything that's morally frowned upon by God? Um, premarital sex. And in doing so, you're making a choice between life and death, heaven and hell. So I want you to think about with that sense of sobriety. And also, you said you have a Bible at home. The Gospel of John was written that you might know you have everlasting life. Do you know where the Gospel of John is in the New Testament? No, I don't. There's four books in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the fourth one in. And could I just encourage you, open it up and read it with an open, humble heart and think about especially what Jesus said because never a man spoke like that man. He said, marvel not of this, for the hour is coming and all that are in their graves shall hear my voice. That's a weird thing to say. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, Yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 
That's you. So that's your choice, a way of life and a way of death. Make sense? Mm-hmm. You've been very, very gracious to let me say these hard things, but I, I hope you see my motive as being one of caring. You're going to think about what we talked about today? Nathan, if you were to die today, you'd be dead. And that horrifies you. You don't know this, but man, I love you, I care about you. I don't even know you, but I'm horrified of the thought of you ending up a hell. So you must repent and trust the Savior. When are you going to do that? Tonight. Can I pray with you? Yes, sir. Father, I pray for Nathan. Thank you for his open heart today. I pray that you would remind him of his secret sins and he'd be genuinely sorry, contrite for them and find a place of genuine repentance because of your kindness towards him, that he understand the cross and this day places faith in Jesus and pass from death to life, all because of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know what the Gospel of John is? It's the fourth book of the New Testament. I'm going to give you a copy. Think you'll read it? Sure. Most definitely I will. Most definitely. Nathan, thanks for listening to me. And... This will be as real to you as you are with God. If you leave here and say, that was interesting, but you continue looking at porn and just carry on, you think nothing will happen. But if you genuinely repent and trust in Christ, the Bible promises God will reveal himself to you, not in voices or flashes of lightning, but he'll change your heart on the inside so you'll love righteousness. And you'll be aware of God's presence uh, until the moment you die and then into eternity. And death will have lost its thing, and there's no greater joy than that. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Make sure you check out the Living Waters podcast and this, the Evidence Study Bible. It's everything I've learned in more than 50 years of reaching out to the lost. It's packed with information on apologetics, cults, evolution, atheism, and much more than 1,900 pages, including 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith. And make sure you check out the Starter Kit. It contains four of the most popular tracks including 50 Ten Commandments coins. Available at livingwaters.com. Have you seen our video, I Thought I Could Pray the Gay Away? It really is a very interesting and respectful conversation. You can watch it right now by clicking up to your left. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. 
just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still, you pursue relentlessly. At times, I wonder how this can be. Surely, it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So, even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever, this grace, it will remain. Because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean, but my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. Shine with it's immutable. And if you want to find out more about him, go to lampmode.com, L A M P M O D E dot C O. The other person we played is uh, Go Fish. You can find them at gofishguys.com, G O F I S H G U I S dot C O. Gofishguys.com. And don't forget to check out my website, um, To Be Told Radio for a show, and my other one, um, Smiles and Stuff dot com smiles and stuff dot com and that's all we got for a show today good go out with Yancy and friends and join me next time Sunday 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. and bye for now <laughs>